so in this third sort of talk, we're going to, there's going to be some overlap and a little bit of review that you'll find in here in some of the, in some of the uh, definitions and how we explain things, but I trust that this will help to unify what we've uh, gone through in the first two sessions. So the title of the message is Christ the Logos Unifies All Reality in Himself. That's a, a lot there just in the title. So one way to think of biblical cosmology is a kind of bridge of God's creation to logos. And you guys are familiar with logos. The word is, is, is the Greek word for word. Uh, so we're going to look briefly at that as well. But cosmology helps pull us out of the confusion of a non-integrated view of reality. And it does that by assisting the believer to live in the whole of reality. So mankind was created to worship God and enjoy God forever. You've heard that many times from this pulpit. Uh, before the fall, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that, that God made man upright. Uh, that means that he, he made man in such a way that the power of man's being was united in a central design, function, purpose, and rectitude. That he would worship God and find his ultimate sustenance in God himself. So God made mankind perfectly wedded to man's purpose as a worshiper and a delighter in God. But at the fall, man became alienated from God, and he no longer knew God personally. He, knew no, he, he didn't know God relationally, and consequently, he didn't know himself. So we could say that man became a fragmented being at the fall. And though he became estranged from God and his own purpose, he did not lose his sense of purpose. He didn't lose his will to live or his worshiping nature, but he did become a disintegrated being. And he exchanged the knowledge of God for the creation. So this is part of the consequences of what we call the noetic effects of sin, the noetic effects of sin. And what is meant by that term noetic is the idea that man's sinfulness undermines his knowledge of God by diluting that knowledge with doubts and with skepticism. He became just distrustful of God and determined that God's glory and his own personal prosperity were at odds with one another. And so this gave him tacit permission to seek his own glory, but in his darkened heart, he instead became a fugitive in God's world. And so he spends his life hiding behind trees and in caves. He's a fugitive. He is in rebellion from his own telos. And remember, telos means his own purpose or goal. And man pollutes and fractures himself in the process. So his faculties of reason, his intellect, they're all detached from reality. His will became detached from his intellect. His body became disintegrated from his mind, 
and his will did not function in accordance with his other faculties, his emotions, his affections, all became short-circuited from his intellect and his will. You see, he was a fractured man. The whole of his personality is one of disintegration, and this brought darkness to him. It brought confusion. It brought fear. Man is, is broken, you see. He is dashed. He is wounded. So, you know, I think of a wounded doe, and she, she wants to run, but her legs cannot, you see. She does not function as intended. So it brings disintegration. There's a disintegration there. And this is the condition of every lost person. This, and by the way, this ought to invoke the pity that Christ had for, for us, shouldn't it? These, aren't, these people aren't the enemy, right? We should have pity towards these people. They're lost people. And they're just doing what lost people do. So praise be to God that at regeneration, which means to renew, Christ brings wholeness to the new man. He restores man in his function. He integrates or unites the man together. And this happens positionally at the new birth, but the realization of that integration comes about progressively in, in sanctification. So cosmology helps to sanctify us into the holistic thinking and living by unifying all reality under the lordship of Christ. So Logos doctrine, how does this fit in here? Logos doctrine has two central themes, and I, I really wish we had the time to unpack this, but it would be a beautiful exercise, and maybe someday we will. But uh, the, the church is, is very uh, much anemic in their understanding of Logos. But the two central themes of Logos doctrine is that the thoughts of God and the will of God are made discernible in the person and work of Christ. That is the, the two central themes of Logos doctrine. It has to do with the thoughts of God and the will of God being made manifest in the second member of the Trinity. So the ultimate goal of the incarnation, according to Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, is to unite all things in the Son. And in so doing, God speaks every created thing into restored right relationship to himself. So, but this is no soft landing. This is described as the cosmos, as the cosmos's time of trial. This culminating event is also known as what we would call, or what the scripture calls, the day of the Lord. So this day of the Lord will usher in and inaugurate the third cosmology, known as the new heavens and the new earth. And this is described in detail in 2 Peter. And I think of uh, texts like 2 Corinthians 5.11 that says, And knowing this terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So the day of the Lord is this culminating point in the history of the cosmos when God purges his creation by fire. And this burning purification process will extend to the very nuclei of atoms. 
And we could call this cleansing of the cosmos, God does himself to the creation. Meaning that God's moral majesty will be pressed down like a wine press upon the entire creation in a cosmic wide event. This event known as the day of God or the day of the Lord is a critical aspect in the role of Christ, the Logos in biblical cosmology. But sadly, a thorough grasp of this doctrine and of biblical cosmology is absent in much of, the, of Christian ministry today. And without a healthy understanding of biblical cosmology joined to the very person of Christ, we will not sort of break out of this uh, limp-wristed, anemic Christianity. So the day of God is chiefly about how God goes about the reconciling of all things unto his son, when the son takes back the title deed to the earth. So consider Peter's exhortation after his exposition on the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3, Beginning in verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are awaiting for a, are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So one of the symptoms of holding to a weak cosmology is the church lapses into what we might call a retreat mode and uh, leading to the white, the white flag of moral surrender in the face of the world's relentless pressure. And this pressure is only going to continue to build and build until all the vestiges of Christianity are thoroughly rinsed from the rule of law, right? I mean, essentially, the only thing that's really holding back that dam at this point, obviously, is God's mercy. But practically speaking, it is the Constitution. And once that Constitution is removed, from its place, then the rule of law is the only thing left to stand, and it won't stand, it will, it will go. So the Western world is undergoing an historically new phenomenon. We were talking about some of this this morning in class, that we have today this mushrooming technological advancement, but it's coupled to this appalling biblical illiteracy. And this is a poisonous recipe resulting in an advanced population that does not fear God. That's a scary thought. So key to the fear of the Lord is our commitment to biblical cosmology. For the fixed order which God has put in place has at its core male and female, marriage, family, and male headship. And these relationships are ontologically real in what it means to be human. So studying, identifying, and declaring these distinctions is the work of the Christian, thus it's no surprise that when the academy became apostate, it declared open war on God's 
creational structures of heterosexual marriage, family, patriarchy. So consequently, the progressives have characterized God's good institutions as oppressive to their ideology of erotic freedom. So, but God rejects man's idea that he can win freedom from design, right? Instead, God's loving plan for humanity is found in freedom in design, freedom in design, not from design. So this brings us to this idea of mankind as a, a sort of stakeholder within God's design. And submission to God's creational identity is about being a type of stakeholder in God's story. So submission is not the invention of social structures that are oppressive, but is the holy response to God's creational structures. So our image bearing, according to Genesis, immediately describes male and female, right? Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So as man and woman, we bear God's image in distinctive ways. The call to be holy as he is holy is a call to live as one who honors God's appointed distinctions. And according to 2 Corinthians 7.1, says we are we are to bring holiness to completion as the people of God therefore having these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God so this is not just mere theory this is a way of living it it, it is what it means to live a life unto God we are miniature stakeholders in the New Testament, the word submission is used 76 times. But because we've been conditioned by feminism and individualism to be suspicious of that word, submission, we do not see its value in connection to our lives. We tend not to see taking hold of the world God has made as synonymous with submission. And this is where we have a profound opportunity to understand the ABCs of biblical cosmology. For submission to the creation structures that God has ordained and embracing the gender-specific commands in marriage, family, gender, sexuality, civil law, etc., does not mean that we are being forced into a role that we don't want. What it is actually intended to do is, is that we respond with this joyful recognition of the nature of God's creation and then we seek to find our place in it as miniature stakeholders. It's God's story. It's God's story. So submission is an exhortation to take control of the space where God has put you in. So to, to be in submission is everyone's calling. Everyone's calling. So let's go back to Christ as Logos. And we don't have enough time to get into it, but in John 1, the Apostle John sets forth in his epilogue, verses 1 through 18, of his gospel, that what he's doing in giving Christ the title of Logos 
is that Christ is the agent that makes God's thoughts public. So actually, there's only two places where Logos is mentioned. It's even given as a title for Christ. Uh, one is in Revelation, and the other is there in John's Gospel. And uh, if you're just reading the Gospel of John for the first time, you wouldn't even know that he was talking about Christ. It isn't until later that you get to that. So what does he mean by the term Logos? I mean, if somebody were to ask you and, and say, what, what does it mean that Christ has the name Logos? Can you explain that to me? Would you be able to do that? So at the heart is that Christ is the agent that makes God's thoughts public. He makes them discernible. So fiat creation is the thought of God brought forth into ordered matter by the agent Logos, who is the reason or cause or logic of making this personal creator God known. So, I lied. Go to John 1. Just quickly. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, was Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So it's been said that we could actually replace the word Logos with logic. It might read like this. Like this, in the beginning was logic, and the logic was with God, and the logic was God. And of course, that's how, that is how the Greeks would have understood. They would have been caught. They would have been brought to attention with that word as well as the Jews, but for different reasons. But the Greeks understood that logic was essentially the, the causal force in their understanding of this material world that has design, right? It's not just a big glob like we're being told. It's just the earth, everything is just a big glob of mass and matter and it just sort of formulated itself and gave itself design. Well, the Greeks actually didn't agree with that idea. And so they recognized that there was intelligence, there was design in the creation. But, of course, the difference with saying that in the beginning was logic was that our God is personal, right? He's not a force, right? He's not some supernatural force, but he is a personal, knowable God who is one yet distinct, right? So... If anybody ever asks you, well, where in the Bible does it talk about Trinity? Where do we go to defend Trinity? You go to John 1, 1 first. That's where you go. So Christ is the agent that makes God's thoughts known. He is the eternal utterance of God. He makes the universe discernible. He makes God discernible. So fiat creation is the thought of God brought forth into ordered matter by the agent Logos. 
So that is different, by the way, than merely dictating revelation like the prophets of old, right? They were, God dictated to them and they wrote that dictation and spoke that dictation. But Jesus is the Logos that proceedeth from the Father. He is God incarnate. He is the exact representation of God. That means every word that Jesus spoke is actually the word of God. There is no word that Jesus spoke that is the dot proceedeth from God. John 12, 49 says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. John 12, 49 through 50 says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me himself, excuse me, who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. So as Jesus submits to the Father, in like manner, the place in which we are deployed is that of a kind of stakeholder in God's story. It's a place where through our faithfulness, we are stewards of God's glory. And this is all by virtue of us being united to the Son. So Logos implies that relationships are not created by sheer choice, right? But are built into the very essence of human nature that is made in the image of God. The virtues and graces given to believers through salvation will their relational graces. Righteousness, love, truth are manifested in our relationships. They are relational graces which are to reflect the blessedness of communion that we have within the Godhead. So the Holy Trinity is the foundation for understanding relationships from a theistic standpoint. Who or what determines social order? That's a question that's floating around today. Who determines social order? Is it the government? Is it popular vote? Is it going to be on the ballot on the next election? No. God's order in creation includes a social order. God has given us countless examples of order and systems in the physical creation. This means that the social institutions Logos spoke into existence are awesome in design. They are permeated with beauty and glory, and they are the direct result of divine design and not the result of chance. These social institutions are intended for our good and for his glory. So the real battleground today is the upholding of God's order. And this, the center of that order is found in this relational structures, these social structures that God has designed. And so one of the, one of the functions of the church is to be the pillar, right? Is to be the pillar of truth. And so one way that we do that is to reflect the glory of God by upholding these creational social structures within our relationships, right? John 17 says, says you, you, will, you will know love. You will know this unity with the Spirit, with God, right? You will, the world will know that because of 
the unity that the church reflects. So, three persons, one essence. This means that the unity in diversity that we see in the world, that we see in these social structures, are contained in God's own being. And it means that the relationship between unity and diversity are resolved in his own being. So when God created social order, he stamped the imprint of his own nature and being upon marriage, which is the first creational institution. Submission within the Godhead and submission within marriage are directly related to one another. So we go to the source of authority and the source of submission, the Godhead, in order to understand it rightly and properly. And without this action of going to God, God's order through his word, authority and submission are used wrongly, and they've been used wrongly by mankind throughout history. And it's replete of negative examples of, the, of its abuse. So God states that it is not good for the man to be alone in Genesis 2.18, right? So in the creation of Eve, he moves Adam from aloneness to relationship, to community. Adam goes from solidarity, or from, from, from being alone, right, by himself, to experiencing intimacy, union, community, fellowship, and love. You see, none of those things were possible without his bride. But it models the pattern of the Trinity. Does it not? Community, love, fellowship, right? We are relational people because God is a relational being in relationship to himself. So we don't structure reality, God does. But consider how far the West has moved into paganism. Today our culture denies that God has structured our cosmos and that God has structured our sexuality. But if our young people are going to come to an understanding of biblical cosmology, they must become aware of this concept of a stakeholder in God's cosmos. We don't structure reality. He does. So think of the soul-damning, destroying lie that the creation is but an illusion or is simply raw material from which we may construct the self and that social ordering is a function of oppressive Hierarchy. What a deception. It's, 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 it is a lie. It is a deception. But this arrogance is a very temporary thing, for God's kingdom is coming, and it will fill the earth and the cosmos, and he will vindicate his holiness in time-space history in the day of the Lord. So a genuine fear of God involves our continuously pressing in upon our created purpose. For a telos of glory is our creational identity and we exist for the glory of God as has been said many times. And this all pervasive truth extends to even simple forms of life, right? Fireflies flash to the glory of God, flowers bloom to the glory of God. And uh, you know, if an orca could talk, he would say that I sport in the sea to the glory of God. 
So God's fixed order in cosmology is, a, is foundational and it is a central piece of God's glory story. So consider, think of Jeremiah, the prophet. Um, consider that it is man alone who has departed from his telos. It says, do you not fear me, declares the Lord. Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and have departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest, Jeremiah 5, 22 through 24. So very thought-provoking there. Consider that the celestial bodies that twinkle to the glory of God, exactly where God has commanded them to stay and to be, and yet God tells little tiny man to believe in his Savior, and man shakes his head at his maker and says, no. I willeth not. Think of the arrogance that's involved in unbelief. So the prophet Jeremiah actually comments further on man's de departure from his telos. He says, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Jeremiah 16, I'm sorry, 6.16. So this insolence is infectious. Wherever the fear of God is absent, then it, it will essentially spread like mold in the shower. Where the word of God has departed, this rebellion will grow. We might pause here and give... Praise to God, for he will not leave Adam, Adam's race, that is, in his entire race, in a state of self-imposed ruin. For there are really five, we could call them great beats of redemptive history. And those five great beats are what? Creation, fall, redemption, judgment, and restoration. That fifth beat, restoration, involves the perfect recovery of God's created order. But a great final act is coming first. In, uh, think of Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. It says, in in, and in as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. And Romans chapter 9 informs us that those who know Christ are vessels taken from the same lump of defiled clay as vessels of wrath and dishonor. In his matchless grace and his electing love, God through Christ takes lumps of corrupt clay, right, and makes for himself earthen vessels, as Larry had said earlier, of mercy and grace. But what a cause this is to fear God. 
For on judgment day he will pour out and empty and reveal the contents of each vessel. Will it be spiritual fruit, exalting his unmerited mercy and grace? Or will the contents be a lifetime of sin, selfish ambition, lust? But there will be no hiding in that day, for God will reveal the secrets of men's hearts, Romans 2.16. So God's glory story is an all-consuming plot or meta-narrative, and all history will be consummated in Christ when he sums up all things in heaven and on earth in himself. That's Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 and Colossians 1, 16. So in the purification of the cosmos, the Lord will thoroughly shake everything which exists right down to the atomic level. <clears throat> and essentially, the only thing left will be what? The, king, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. This event or cosmic wide shaking is associated with God as a consuming fire, a burning like furnace, consuming all that is not like him in holiness. Indeed, he will do himself to his creation. This cosmic shaking is described in Hebrews 12 as the removing of things, those things which cannot I'm sorry, which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is what? A consuming fire. Christ's glorious second advent will be accompanied by cosmic disasters the scope of which our imaginations are truly incapable of conceiving. Listen to this from Revelation 6, starting in verse 12. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The calamities that are described in Revelation chapter 6 inform us that the Lord's shaking of creation will extend to the furthest reaches of the cosmos beyond the Hubble telescope. The Logos, the Son of God, is the stone cut without hands who will at once crush all human wisdom. All structures and systems will be ground to powder. They'll be carried off by the wind in preparation for the new heavens and the new earth. Consider one description in Daniel 2, verse 35. It says, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors 
and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Wow. So when we teach these vital truths of biblical cosmology, it is important that we keep Christ at the center. Christ's sovereignty, his incarnation, his humiliation, and his all-sufficient redemptive work must complement our biblical cosmology. And this includes his resurrection, by the way, because the resurrection is the warranty of a new cosmos. For to make a new heavens and a new earth, Christ, the last Adam, reverses the ruin caused by the first Adam, and the Son brings in the reign of grace and life and truth. So when the message of Christ, who is our Lord of cosmology, is missing from our teaching, there's a host of spiritual illnesses that potentially will manifest themselves. So these are caution Cautionary for the church, you could say. And I'm just going to run through these uh, quickly. Without a foundation of biblical cosmology, there tends to be a weak grasp of the significance of one's telos as the image and the likeness of God created for his glory holistically in all of life, right? The second is uh, the symptom is a shallow view of the body and soul binary, manifested as the devaluing of embodied life. Isn't it amazing to me that some preachers are ashamed now or silent when it comes to the topic of abortion? So that's dualism. That's the effect of dualism. Dualism essentially is uh, the discounting of our bodies as a chief spiritual resource. It's really the fruit of Gnosticism. So sin tends to feed on the error that the deeds of the body are but secondary to inner spirituality, right? In fact, Larry was talking about this the other day, about this privatization of Christianity, that it is this esoteric sort of inward idea. It's not to be shared. It's not to be expressed. It's between you and God. Keep it that way, we're told, right? So third, there's a third symptom is the ripping from Christ's hands, his control over all physical existence, followed by the crediting, crediting this control of the cosmos to laws of science, right? It's just nature working its way out, or it's Mother Earth. She's angry. So fourth, without instruction in cosmology, our God's relation to the creation, there is a tendency towards the, the privatization of Christian experience. So our own, our own Christian experience can be separated out. And we start thinking in terms of this dualistic idea that this is my workplace, this is my job, uh, this is, you know, th- these, are, these are neutral things, and that my, my life with the church is my is my spiritual life. And there's a separation from that even in our own lives, in our own thinking. There's also the loss of 
of the question of what is prime reality. The sixth symptom involves a truncated approach to doctrine, for without a determined goal to instruct in Christ the Logos, the churchgoers will have little idea of the dignity and the glory of the one who judged our sins in his own person. So ultimately, Christianity is shoved into a subjective category. And uh, rationalism, science, or pseudoscience becomes the the sort of default, manageable, pragmatic form of Christianity. It's happening now. It's happening all across this country in our churches. This is the thinking. So Christ must be our unifier of all reality. We must think rightly and our hearts must be shaped to live in accordance with that reality. The fact that truth is a divine person and the truth is only known by a relationship with this divine person is a commentary upon our our utter dependence upon him as his creatures. So in unifying all reality, Christ does what the greatest philosophers in history could not do. He unifies being and becoming, temporal, eternal, visible, invisible, material, immaterial, singularity, multiplicity, created and uncreated realities. He unifies them all in his person and his work. Christ the Logos is the first fruits. That is, he is the first heavenly man the prototype of the glorified man. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, consequently. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28, also in 45 through 48, this is described. So in himself, in the hypostatic union, he weds the human and the divine together. And by this union, we, his church, are brought near to God, as near to God as a creature could possibly be. In himself, he unites all redemptive history, for every program of God is carried out in him as creator, logos, lawgiver, lamb, lion, and lord of the cosmos. So no no greater miracle could ever be conceived than God the Son becoming one of his own creatures. But this was necessary in order for him to become the mediator, to bring his own from defiled dust to flawless glory. So in the new heavens and the new earth, the bondage of decay will be removed forever, and every created thing will declare God's praise in accordance with its created purpose. We look forward to that day. And that is, when, that is what is meant by cosmic holiness, in Revelation 21.5, that Christ has the power to subject all things to himself and consider the magnitude of that power in Christ himself. It says in Philippians 3.20-21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. 
And this power was by no means exerted without the full satisfaction of divine justice. Amen. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So in unifying all reality in himself, Christ is the solution to all of our afflictions. So I want to just close here with this. Have you ever stopped and considered just why counterfeit glory is so attractive to fallen men? And how it is that we are so deceptively drawn to it? I mean, we love the concept of an Adamic-like king. We're dazzled by men with a 40-inch vertical that can throw a round ball through a cylinder, that can drive the fastest car, or hit the farthest ball, accumulate the most wealth. Or if you prefer, gladiator-like cinema heroes that daringly rescue the maiden while slaying the dragon. Have you ever paused to consider why these things tantalize our soul so much? Well, the answer is, because we were made to behold greatness. We are hardwired to behold glory, but in our fallenness, we take our affections to created things. Consider that once our forefathers tamed the wildness of the new world, established factories and reliable sources of food and energy, what then did they turn their attention to with this newfound time? Well, we built massive stadiums, entertainment venues from coast to coast. From Hollywood to Nashville, we built entire cities that are oriented towards cinema, towards music, towards games, sports, events. So instead of spending our prosperity learning the thoughts of God and his will for our lives, we ended up chasing after lesser glories. What we did is we used the prosperity and resources that God graciously gave us to harness the worship of the creation. Consider that Christian academic institutions like Harvard, Yale, Columbia, they were built to stretch the theological mind of man, but over time they became corrupted and eventually they became entirely secular. We live in an entirely secular West. But the true disciple is animated not by the glory of the creation, but the glory of the creator. And part of our being moved from our fixation with lesser glories to the source of glory involves custom design trials prepared by God to experience this communication of himself. So he rules his church by means of three offices. He rules his church as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. 
And these three offices, think of them as dimensions of his mediatorial glory. We could say that these three offices act sort of as an observatory in order to view his excellencies. In exercising these offices, he unifies redemptive history, he himself being its goal, for all recorded time will be consummated and summarized in him. And on that great day, history will prove to be the record of the honoring and the dishonoring God and the results of each. And all things will dovetail into one unifying purpose, seeing and beholding God in our nature. The glorified saints surrounding the throne of the Lord will marvel forever. And this is the purpose of the ages, to dwell with God in our nature, to behold him and to worship him forever. So this, my brothers and sisters, explains the ultimate reason for human existence. The revelation and the communication of God to the elect of God is history's destination. And this is the glory for which we were created. This destiny of beholding this glory is the highest possible happiness. It is the blissful vision of God for humanity. And to enthusiastically behold this glory is why we were created. So how we need to experience this fresh discovery of Christ's lordship over the creation. It is an incredible source of sanctification. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this time. Your word is true meat and drink to our souls, and your truth provides endless opportunities to view the different dimensions of your glory. Lord, you are good and kind and gracious to us. And your glory permeates everywhere. Help us with our dullness. Help us to see you as best as a creature can see you in this condition. Discipline us where we need discipline. Instruct us with knowledge where we need knowledge. Give us wisdom where we need wisdom. Grant us repentance where we need repentance. And fill our minds with your glory and your purpose. May we be made whole progressively as we are positionally. Thank you again for your great mercies upon us. And in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we pray, amen.